You see those lines? All right, excellent. Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this morning? We're recording in the morning now. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's a little bit of a change, isn't it? Well, it's a beautiful, clear morning here. I have my sprinkler system now fully installed. I don't have a lot of plants here out here in the desert, but I do want to keep them alive. Uh, and I want to sort of carry my weight as a neighbor and, and uh, look after things. So that's good. The birds are singing. Uh, got kind of a work plan for the week. Uh, uh, my niece was down visiting. Uh, we did get a little bit of work done. We got the kitchen or the, the guest bathroom cupboard sanded and painted. Uh, but mainly we just had fun. We went to a really cool ghost town just around the corner, which was I hadn't I been there before. Towns. I had not That's been so there. Cool. It's it's kind of an outdoor museum, uh, really, and and you can have weddings there, which I think would be really. It's a quite a beautiful desert chapel. Um, mm-hmm. It's really wild. So the mood's pretty good here. This is a great time of year in uh, in Boulder City. Not quite, you know, not too hot yet, um, and the winds have died down. So uh, I'm I'm in a good mood, and we had a great final session of the No Country Book Club, our first book club discussions about the book Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, Lawrence Weschler's biographical portrait of the California artist Robert Irwin. And for people listening who are not part of the club, um, I really encourage you to join in. David is leading the discussions with his uh, the second book choice coming up. But it was really, really everything that I hoped for. A lot of, of good fellowship, very, very interesting ideas. Uh, it was just really cool. So there mm-hmm. you go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next phase of it. We're going to be talking about Byung Chul Han's The Disappearance of Ritual. I think it's going to be much like this book was. Uh, I was really looking forward, based off of your preliminary notes, uh, where it was going to go. And it was actually much more freeform than I had expected, with a lot of the really good stuff coming from the people who attended the book club. Absolutely. you and I. Um, so I thought that that was... You know, it's good to have these frames. You're really good at professionally organizing... A book into topics and things that can be discussed but you also part of what makes you a good teacher is you know when to when to back off and to pursue people down rabbit holes and you really like a few times with you know Ryan or Nick or Craig or Mason you really uh, sunk your teeth in and didn't let them wriggle away from a thing that they had just said so it was quite a sight to behold and makes me feel very excited for part two. Excellent. Well, that's what we set out to do, and this is an exciting adventure. And like any adventure, it, it, it benefits enormously from the company that is involved, the people who are on the journey with you. And that sense of participation and building something together is, is what the whole thing is about. So I'm looking forward to, to this book. You, you've referred to it in the past. You bring such a great depth of knowledge and, and passion and a, a good door opening natural teacher uh, strength yourself. So I think this is a good uh, next step 
and uh, we encourage more participation. Uh, we we really, uh, I, I think that the group interaction was is just outstanding. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. For listeners at home, you've probably heard him a few times. I've got Mr. Guess here in my arms, so he'll be our third mic for the day. He'll have, I'm sure, lots of thoughts about what we're talking about. He says hi. Um, before we get into it, though, because I'm sure there's a lot to get into, what is my imaginative challenge for the day? Okay, okay. Well, this is a good teacherly challenge. I want you to imagine yourself as a seminar leader at maybe something like the Esalen Institute or some cool uh, continuing learning uh, institution set up for uh, adults. Uh, and you're, you're a natural contrarian. Uh, and, and we have used, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> okay. I know that's news to, uh, to you and your Twitter followers, but, uh, yeah, yeah um, I, am afraid it's so. Well, we, we talk mm-hmm. about how we can use, uh, tools like contrarianism to get new leverage points and new perspective. So here's what I've been thinking about for my new book, uh, which focuses on, on memory and alertness, uh, more specifically, it builds on the, the the textbook, which is now out from Rutledge Press. And thanks to everyone who is uh, looking at that book, who may as, maybe have ordered it. Uh, I'm very proud of it. A lot of people have been involved in that uh, over the years, uh, thousands of students and and writing colleagues from around the world. But one of the things I look at is this whole concept of attention in the world today and we're very conscious of technological distractions we have some really good writers like Nicholas Carr and Douglas Rushkoff talking about the problems that uh, young people face uh, a book has crossed my desk which is just out uh, which may offend some uh, younger people but I think it's an interesting read it's called the dumbest generation grows up from stupefied youth to dangerous adults, Mark oh, wow. Bowerlane. Mark Bowerlane. That that last name is B A U E R L E I N. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of a hot read. Um, but I've yeah. been thinking about this notion of the phrase "paying attention." Listeners who have been with us from the start know that we have given a lot of time to uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's. Uh, call to to action to look closely at metaphors and to not just let phrases go by i think it's odd that we have that notion of paying attention you know a very kind of crass commercial uh, approach to to alertness but i was thinking that since it is easier to be distracted than to pay attention i would get david developing a seminar idea where he looks at attention as a form of distraction. What if that premise was plopped in his lap, as Mr. Gus is now? Attention as a form of distraction. Well, what would it be distraction from? So David is going to think about this over the course of the hour and come back to us with a seminar approach that looks at distraction in a new light because distraction is easier than to pay 
quote-unquote, attention. So maybe we should embrace that. Maybe we should think, well, what is attention? What if it were a form of distraction? What would it be distracting us from? Any questions? No, that's interesting. Yeah, the paying attention metaphor is one of the primary uh, quote-unquote metaphors we live by in the Wayne book. Um, there's a lot of money sort of, uh, you know, wasting time, paying attention. They, they bring us face-to-face uh, -face with these kind of metaphors that we use every day that we don't necessarily think about or interrogate. So... Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. I'm thinking. Excellent. I'm thinking okay. of, a, of a seminar. Of a seminar subject thing about that. These things become yeah. so stealthy that we we do we don't pay attention to them, uh, and they slip mm -hmm. past us. And they yet they inform our thinking at very very deep levels. Right. Okay. Cool. All right. So we're ready to uh, to jump into. Uh, Kind of an expansion of, of, of what Wake we've been talking about. Uh, it built, I mean, we, we had the sort of the weakened dissonance. We're looking now at forms of coherence, what, what defines coherence, and, and how it is both lost and how it might be gained. Uh, and I came across uh, a line from my rereading of Joseph Campbell. And I think, you know, Dave and I have talked about Campbell, and uh, I encourage people to, to check him out again. He, he kind of got overexposed, and I think became a little bit of, of a cliché, which was unfortunate, because he brought an enormous amount of learning and did a lot to open up uh, the whole interest in mythology, uh, mythography, uh, a real literate approach to world anthropology that I think is still worth our time. But he makes an assertion which I think sums up beautifully his, his whole life work, which is not an easy thing to do if you write and think and teach for decade after decade. He says, history is a function of misunderstood mythology. So I thought I would throw that open to, to David, who always gets us rolling with an interesting response. Uh, but I think we can see where this could possibly lead in, in the sense of larger uh, discussions about what cultural coherence means. And you can see my interest uh, coming from the memory point of view, which is kind of my fixation point right now, where history you know, is arguably uh, has to be mentioned whenever you talk about memory. Um, so here's the line again, David. History is a function of misunderstood mythology. What do you think of that? It's interesting because it's the inverse of how we would normally think about that. We would, we would typically think that myth is some kind of attempt to explain or storify or narrativize uh, historical events but I like this inversion because it's for the first thing it brings to mind, and I mean, and this is this is Campbell that we're talking about, is that it brings to mind permanent archetypal uh, movements and beings and and modes that then uh, are, they're they're kind of the first thing. They're the they're the proto history basically. Um, I think that history as mis 
understood myth. Hmm. I'd really, I'd have to think about that, but another thing that comes to mind is the prominence of symbols in our lives. We talked about this in the book club, and it's something, symbols have been something that I've been thinking about a lot these past few weeks or so. Um, and th this idea that of what myths actually do. So I think a way into this particular quote, which I think is great, I think we need maybe a working definition of the function and and what even myth is. Okay, I think that's fair enough. I would call listeners' attention to a very interesting uh, word and perspective that, that David started with of inversion, uh, which ties in with our, our approach about tools, conceptual tools, psychic defense and, and analysis and psychic healing tools, uh, drawing on mathematical inspirations, because uh, inversion is uh, a mathematical principle that is very, very handy when we use it in, in broader conceptual terms. So I think that's an interesting starting point. Wherever we can invert something, uh, it's worth having that perspective shift. Uh, it really calls into question balance, Venn diagrams of, of value. Uh, it, it makes us think about things from a different point of view. And with everything that Dave and I are, are talking about is, is that struggle for a different perspective. You know, whether it's leaving a stepladder out in your office and occasionally climbing up on it to look at the room from a different point of view, it, it's difficult to get a different point of view. And, and whenever we do, something interesting happens. And it's also what happens when we have discussions and really good engagement with others. We, we, we get a hold of another perspective. Uh, well, here's my thought about how we might get a handle on what Campbell means here by, by mythology, breaking it down. I wonder, and I've been thinking about, I've been uh, moving into my, my new house and I hanging all my masks from around the world. I've, I've primi primarily put up masks that have been made for me or given to me or that I've collected, not the ones that I've made, because some of those are just too scary looking. But I was thinking about a couple of my favorites, one from the Congo River, uh, which is, I think, one of the most interesting places there is in the world, and the other from the Sepik River area. And when I was thinking about the Campbell quote, I thought mythology is, first of all, within those cultures, not something that is distanced by time, you know? And I think that we, we fundamentally start, even before we were aware of it with, with the word history, we're already somehow at a distance in time. You know, uh, it, it could be thousands of years ago, it could be last week, but it's already somehow behind us. And therefore, I would suggest, to some extent out of reach, or an imaginative challenge for us to recoup. And that re-prefix is so important. You know, we talked in the book club about representation, re-presentation. The, the, the two letters, R-E, creep in 
so many ways and and because of the inflection uh the the accenting sometimes we forget about that and we just we don't we don't hear or see the again part of re but in cultures like say the sepik or the congo river the peoples that i'm thinking of mythology is first of all an active dynamic living force that is not distanced by history so i wonder if if what campbell is saying without really any breakdown, which we have to do, is that he's really speaking to developed nations, Western culture and the advanced Asian nations of today. He's not talking about traditional uh, tribal societies, indigenous people. Um, what do you think of that as a beginning point? So that we're, because I don't think he acknowledges that, and I think that we need to, and and, and to break that down a little bit before we can get our flippers on it. I think that works, especially if you consider Western and some uh, Asian, East Asian societies as being ones for whom history becomes this matter of fact. In fact, is a is the troubled word, mm. there, right? So the more that I think that uh, history is misunderstood mythology, it speaks to me of cultures that perhaps erroneously believe that they have some sort of handle on what truth is. These are just the facts, you know, facts don't care about your feelings type thing uh, versus mythology, which is in its own sense true, more true and, and could potentially be if you want to get really deep into it, could potentially be the basis for everything that we experience, right? History is this little cousin of myth that has pretensions to somehow being uh, more real than myth. Right. Okay, well, here is, uh, you've just triggered a kind of an avalanche of, of, of thought that... Uh, I suppose was there, but but you you do this so well. Um, when I was thinking about the word history, I did just a quick, uh, you know, honestly a Wikipedia look at, at theories of history, philosophies of history, uh, and and there are hundreds of them actually, hundreds, uh, and there are some very valid ones. Um, the great person theory of history might be just one of hundreds of examples where really that what we're looking at is anomalous individuals who have made enormous achievements or innovations or uh, contributions and, and they're the anchor points to a historical view. Alexander might be one of them and if you know the story of Alexander you know that there is an enormous amount of mythology entwined with what we might call so-called real history around that individual, you know. And I think this becomes true of, of all of these celebrities throughout time. Uh, and some of them may be completely mythic in the sense that we're not really sure uh, they ever uh, breathed oxygen and walked around. We don't know. We don't know if they were symbolic creations of culture, culture heroes, uh, it, it things blur and it becomes very hard to to pin down uh, so-called history 
versus mythology. And I think that word versus there is an interesting uh, opposition because there is, I think, in the, in the contemporary uh, Western mind, uh, a confusion and, and a genuine uh, collision that history is, is fact, as David says, and somehow that's monolithic and uh, just inarguable. And mythology is very fluid, uh, very populist, and also potentially just wrong. That, that it's very easy to dispute or dismiss, or that's a conspiracy theory, or, you know, we, we've all heard this. This is an, an easy way of, of just dismissing uh, a point of view. Um, and I think there's a, a, a deeper underlying sense here, which history is not something the average person feels they are participating in or can create mm -hmm. or modify. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that we have a kind of consumerist uh, victim, uh, bystander, let's say. Maybe that's more neutral. But your average person in the street, which is a very strange concept in itself, I don't think feels as if they are making history. I think they feel they are embedded within it and potentially uh, at its mercy to some extent. Whereas I think in anything that we could call a traditional uh, smaller scale indigenous culture, that mythology is very, very much alive within the people. Remember we talked about earlier uh, about the distinction between hard and soft memory within a culture or society. And on board, as in, you know, when an old tribal elder dies, there's something fundamentally lost there. Whereas in a developed nation situation, yeah, we might mourn uh, an older person dying, but we really think, well, we have other ways of recouping that memory, that cultural contribution. We've got artifacts, we've got things online. We miss the individual, not the knowledge, the culture that individual carries. We don't really think of ourselves as cultural expressions. Uh, I think we sadly think of ourselves as consumers and victims. And so some of this is, is I think, very important to, to flesh out further. Um, but I would suggest that it's worth a quick look at the very, uh, the numerous theories of history, schools of thought about how history is, uh, is processed and recorded and what gets emphasized. You know, there's, there, and we have, there are hundreds, there's, there are feminist views of history, there are Marxist views of history, on and on and on. Uh, all of them making presentations uh, of truth, of truth. And I think that one thing we could do is substitute the word validity for truth. That helps a lot, I think. Validity is a great word. I love this distinction that you made between myth being something that a person could internalize and utilize in their life that could be valid to them, right? Rather than history, which seems to demand a person to kind of obsequiously become 
a slave to the, the cold, hard facts of what reality are that are somehow outside of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like there's an inner and an outer dynamic that you're talking about that might be very important because the people who make history are the ones that have internalized myth better than other people. So it does seem to me to be, uh, to play into a lot of the ideas that we talk about on this show, specifically with regard to, you know, what do you become if you don't have any valid stories or heroes, myths that you can internalize to guide your principles in your life and, you know, people to look up to? If you just have history, the bare facts of things, everything begins to seem very, very dry. Not always. Not. I don't want to paint with a with a broad brush here because there are some uh, historical writers who make history very exciting. Uh, there are things that have happened in history that are completely insane and more interesting than a lot of fiction, as we call it. But in speaking broadly, there does seem to be a kind of externalization of an internal process that is meant specifically to separate you from your own power. Right, right. I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. And I think that's one, you know, we're, we're constantly on the hunt, sort of a, a giant fossil hunt for what what defines the modern age because that's a a very that historically is a very uh, contentious idea but i think that shift of uh from the potential to be part to be a creator to be something more than just a cog in in a machine uh is one of the contentious issues of of the modern age and we have You know, we have some real ironies and paradoxes, uh, you know, the selfie, uh, posting and, and having a presence on social media and YouTube, so many avenues of expression. And yet, you know, people feel less and less involved in, in the media and society and culture at large and therefore history at large. So there, that, I think, is a huge paradox that... Uh, the consumerist model, uh, you know, we're told that we can, as, as I like to say, build our own burgers and customize our phone plans and only pay for what we need. And we can reach out and we're important. And this Coke is for you. And, and all of this uh, supposed uh, embrace and acceleration of, of individuality and identity. And yet the, the truth is, as we know from many different market research sources that people feel more alienated less and less at the controls of their own life let alone uh anywhere near the navigation stations of 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 culture um which is a real real problem uh i want to go off on you know we talked about tangents and the importance of tangents and embracing the idea of tangents and and david is often a, a beautiful elucidator and performer of that but uh, David, am I right in thinking that uh, recently on Twitter you posted something about the difference in sound, uh, the sounds of, of the past, and how we don't yes. know what... 
I thought that was enormously interesting. Uh, and it, it does tie into uh, one of the very peculiar and I think uh, really important uh, developments in the last book club discussion. I mean, here we are talking about a visual artist and everyone in the group also mentioned a hyper alertness to sound which is something mm -hmm. terribly important to me and, and perhaps Deb, I've just moved home to a very different environment. It's incredibly quiet at night. There's a whole new range of bird sounds. Uh, sound is something that is just very uh, obsessively interesting to me in the moment. But I thought that was a really important uh, comment that you made, David, because I don't think that we have taken this on board in culture-wide terms, nearly enough. Uh, one of the reasons that we find people's mental functions, you know, cognitive capabilities and memory scrambled isn't just the computer screen or social media. A lot of it has to do with amplified music. Uh, we have songs going through our heads in a different way than people 200 years ago. I mean, it's a whole different world of sound. You've got an interesting sound in the background that you didn't have, you know, a year ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, sound is terribly important. But uh, could you just bring forward that, uh, that remark that you made on Twitter? Because I'll, I'll tie that into uh, the problems of, of history uh, because I think it was a very practical, physical, uh, sensory way to look at some of these issues. Yeah, and all credit where it's due, as you mentioned, this was completely inspired by the book club discussion. But my thought was, what have you ever thought about how different everything must have sounded 300 years ago? And I picked 300 very specifically because we're getting to you know pre-industry basically. Now, it would be different if you were in the country versus the city. I'm sure that Victorian England had plenty of noises. Um, however, still different. Like you said, nobody was hearing um, announcements over loudspeakers. And nobody was hearing, like you said, nobody was had a song stuck in their head that they heard on the radio. Right. It was put there by somebody else. So it was a you know, as good tweets are, it's very broad, but I, I was wondering, you know, just, just how different the world would have sounded 300 years ago. I think that's such a, a, an important, uh, simple, practical uh, way to look at some of the problems we're facing with all this revisionist history ideas uh, that, that are, are incredibly in fashion in the moment. Because it's, it seems to me that, that it should be obvious, and yet it's not, and of course nothing is obvious inherently, that we really don't have any idea about the mindset of people in the past. We're, we're, we really, really do not at the fundamental sensory day-to-day, minute-to-minute level. Uh, it's, it takes a tremendous imaginative effort to uh, really, you know, Time travel. I mean, what what did St. Louis in 1850 sound like? And then right. what did it smell like? You know, I mean, it really right. takes some thought. What, you know, I mean, uh, people would, would mistake, I think, 
what uh, the two most prominent languages uh, on a business level might have been at that time. Spanish and French are the correct answers. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we, we just simply struggle with putting ourselves not just into other people's shoes. Deb and I have had some good interrogations of the notions of empathy amongst, you know, in our own time, connecting with people that, uh, that we can reach out and touch, literally. But I think that there's a tremendous problem when we think that we can understand the underlying values, the grammars, as I often say, of the past, mm -hmm when we're so disconnected from some of the basic physical sensory experiences. So I thought that was a really important point. And then that got me thinking about uh, the sounds uh, around me now. And I, I'm very grateful that there uh, is a lot less amplified music, not of my choosing, you know. I, I kind of don't want to mm -hmm. hear thud, thud, thud. And I think that I uh, shared that in addition to uh, the criminals living downstairs in my old place, there was also a, a special needs young boy on the other side of the wall who had been given a violin as a musical <laughs> instrument. Now, I am a great encourager of music and music in, in, the, in youth. Uh, but I think I also may have said at some point, you know, when I was young, my first instrument of choice was the trumpet. And yeah. one of our neighbors uh, managed to work up the courage to come over and say to my mother, please, could, could we find him another instrument? And uh, <laughs> as I mentioned in the textbook, he, he was a really uh, cool, uh, retired black policeman, really, really a widower, really mellow dude. And it must have taken some courage and, you know, to, to politely say to my mom, look, this, this boy's driving me nuts. He, he'll never play the trumpet. And later he compared my playing to the sound of a baby elephant perishing in quicksand. That's great. And I, I call attention to that in the textbook because it, it, uh, it's a, it wasn't a write, uh, written uh, comment, and he didn't have any pretensions to being a writer, but I think it's one of the best things I've ever heard. And uh, I, I just think so much of, of what we do here uh, in, in terms of storytelling and living mythology comes from people who aren't uh, professional writers. Uh, so I think there's that. But sound, I've been thinking about the tremendous input of bird sound, bird song that I'm exposed to here, which takes me back in time, my personal history, so to speak, to the Southern Hemisphere, where there was an incredible bird life. And then I'm thinking about the animals and the coyotes at night and how they've encouraged me to get out on the trail and examine foot and paw prints and scat. And that made me think that one of the interesting features of world mythology, as opposed to all these theories of history, there's a very, very fundamental line that can be drawn. History, look at all those hundreds of, of schools of thought, they, it all has to do 
with humans. Myths mm. around the mm. world always have a great deal to do with animals. Wow. You know? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk about man gave names to all the animals. Well, yes, maybe, but man also, I think, learned a lot. I mean, what are hieroglyphs if, if not based on paw and claw prints? And what is melody, I mean, if not birdsong? I mean, I think, the, I think birds can be credited as the, the inventors of melody. So in many ways, it seems to me, is that mythology was a, a world view that embraced humans in a matrix of non-human life and spirit, that it reconciled matter and spirit, and people versus animals, weather, you know, a whole matrix of living, dynamic interchange. Whereas you look at history and it becomes kind of sort of an argument about whose human point of view is right about human things. So That's amazing. No, I love that. And it really brings the Joseph Campbell quote to light as well, where, you know, history is misunderstood myth. It's going to be fundamentally misunderstood if you leave out a significant portion of the POV characters. That's well said. That's well said. So it's fundam- it, it, it almost is, uh, there's no escape. It's inevitably, it's inevitably misunderstood. Yeah, because you're leaving out the perspective of the trees. Right. Or the perspective of, you know, sadness. You're leaving out the perspective of hell. You're leaving out the perspective of bear, you know. And to people in general, specifically people like us, but I think people in general, those are important embodied perspectives that as an animist, you attempt it, you know, whenever you can during your waking day to, to, to animate those forces within your own manner of thinking. And all of a sudden, you know, it's hard to explain to some people uh, why a film, for example, might either be a, a strong force for cultural good or cultural bad that has nothing to do with wokeness or quotas, making sure that you know Thor is played by a black woman, nothing like that, right? But something a little bit deeper about what certain films or artworks or books are leaving out. Right. They're becoming closer to history than art, right? And myth and art, myth and art are intertwined, obviously. Most of the greatest art in history has come from myth. I like how I used every word in that sentence. Um, <laughs> the, the greatest art in history comes from myth. Um, and it's, it, as a tangent, it is interesting how history becomes synonymous with the word the past. But when I just said history there, in an unthinking kind of way, I sort of just linked history to a kind of objective past that you and I both know, right? Like, I'm, ass- I'm assuming a lot about our shared uh, basis for, for understanding these things. Just, but it's so flippant, right? You, just, you say it and you don't even think about it. Oh, all the great artworks in history. It's like, wait, what is that? Wait, in what? Yeah. In his- what do you mean? It, it's by that? sneaky. Are it's you including sneaky. Yep. the artworks? Are you including uh, beaver dams? 
Are you including a card, the cardinal's nest that's outside my, my window? What do you mean by the greatest artworks in history? So this, this conversation is blowing my mind. It, you know, it ties back to Robert Irwin's point that, that, that and he, he comes at it from several different angles. And, and Weschler, I think, does a great job at, at allowing uh, the reader uh, to, to hear the vocalization of this from, from different points of view, that underlying art is, is, a, is a grammar of assumed values. That, that needs constant interrogation and dismantling. And uh, the beautiful thing of, of rebuilding together, you know, of, uh, I, was, I was walking past one of my neighbors and uh, he's doing uh, some, some car, rebuilding an engine. And uh, he had this old bed sheet down on, on the concrete in the garage. And the whole thing, you know, is now this exploded view so he can put the thing back together. And he's walking around it the way I walk around, you know, my paintings. And I thought, you know, the aesthetic and functional decisions that he's making are, first of all, entwined. There is not a distinction. There's, aesthetics is not something separate from the functionality, the performance. They're linked. They are one. But those are just as valid as anything that could be applied to a so-called artwork. You know, it's, it is one meditation. And somehow we have gotten into the peculiar habit, and I think habit is an interesting word to, to bring into this discussion, and it's a word that Rupert Sheldrake has some interesting angles on, uh, who's one of our sort of intellectual and spiritual heroes. But we have gotten into the peculiar habit of, of dividing things like aesthetics, aesthetic decisions from functional decisions, from seeing participation versus pure consumerism, you know? Uh, and only when we, and the, I think the reason is, is that we're, we're, we're too willing to uh, take these assumptions at face value and just, and suddenly we're, we're, we're using them and we're being used by them, you know? Well, that's, uh, that's, he was, uh, we were walking around together and then he decided that he didn't want to do that anymore. So, I'm sorry, could you repeat the last thing you said? I apologize. I, I lost that last little bit. Well, I think that, that what, what we have fallen into, uh, you know, on a, on a fairly giant scale of, of culture, lowercase c, mm -hmm. anyway, mm -hmm. uh, of, of just, accepting some pretty outrageous oppositions and conflicts that may in fact not be conflicts at all. A good example being aesthetics versus functionality. Uh, I mean, who really thinks that something honestly can be beautiful and be completely artificial faults wrong mm -hmm, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. you know no one really is going to fall for that there's there some some qualifications and i'm uh going to talk about that qual uh prefix uh as we get to our tool segment but i think that that 
none of us really buys into that. We just accept it because it's streaming past our head because we've got so much stuff going on and we don't take a moment and go, wait a minute. Yeah, the Cardinal's Nest is a valid form of art. Mm -hmm. It's just as important. We need to include these perspectives. Why do we have mythic figures like Coyote the trickster? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful idea. You know, uh, we, we all, you know, and in these insipid animated movies that are bombarding us all the time, there is at least, I think, an instinct to, to get us back to non-human points of view and characters. Right. You know? Right. And I it's mean, interesting, too, because everybody knows what you mean when you say Coyote trickster. And I think if I can remember the first time I heard it, something just clicked, not knowing very much about coyotes. It just seemed somehow correct as though it was in a deep, you know, Akashic record that I was accessing as soon as I heard that term. Um, that's all I got for that. <laughs> that's just a kind of a passing tangent, I guess. But Well, no, I think there's something really important there because, I mean, if, for instance, we are talking about a distinction between history and mythology and we are talking about anything to do with truth, which history does make claims about, we were suggesting validity uh, or potential validity is a better uh, diagnostic there, better promise. Uh, one of the things that, that is peculiar about mythology is it always does seem bigger than an individual perspective. It seems to be an example of culture with a capital C, or what we have uh, talked about as the ghost radio signal. There's something appropriate about a trickster figure being associated with coyotes. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, there's, you couldn't just make that up on your own. You know, there's some depth to this that, that really does go back in time, truly. It goes back to some moment of giant human dream time that may still be accessible and present to us all if, if the mood is right. Uh, interesting that mood is doom spelled backwards. It is interesting. You know, I think yeah. that, you know, I think that, that that's a beautiful opposition there. You know, we could we can we could just think of that as 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 a mood. And I think if we get back into the mood of the primeval, mm -hmm. uh, the deep spirit forest and desert right. and cave system that the human consciousness emerged from. We inevitably find that there is connection with the non-human world. That that is a fundamental div dividing point. Uh, that suddenly the animal spirits, the plant spirits, the rock spirits. I mean, people who think rocks are inanimate just don't live where I do. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, exactly. That's... Yeah. You know, I mean, the geology is as alive and active, and you talk about storytelling. I mean, all you have to do is just look at, you see manganese, you see limestone, you see granite, you see sandstone, you see pumice, you know, you see living history, you see the wind and rain changing things. I mean, how much more dynamism does anyone want? You know, oh, it's just rock. You know, No, it's not. I, do, I would it's look at earth. somebody like they were wearing a fish on their head or something if they told me that trees weren't beings with thought and conscience 
or consciousness, I should say. Like that, that just that does not compute to me. That'd be like pointing at a at a person, you know, and saying like, oh, well, they're they're an automaton. They're not actually alive. I would think, what what do you mean? Of course they're alive. But it's interesting, yeah. It's interesting that some some people, I don't know if it's an act of forgetting or uh, if they're just sort of willfully not seeing it, but. Some people don't seem to think that way. What would you like, son? Let's take a break here for a second. What can I help you with? Is there anything that I could help you with? You seem to be... We've been walking around. We've been playing with toys. How is the walking guy? Good. He, um, we were warned about the walker uh, being something that might actually make it a little bit tougher for him to walk because he walks on his tippy toes now. So mm-hmm. everybody who gave us advice on that was correct. And we ignored them because limited resources sometimes you got to throw the kid into a walker so he can move around um however now he uh, as we're talking he is standing with one hand on this piano type thing that he likes playing with uh, he's a very musical young man he likes all of his piano toys um right but le- uh, yesterday he stood for a full four seconds on his own it's very wobbly but I think we're about a week away from full-on standing and balance, which then comes the walking part, which we all seem to forget is just controlled falling and must be terrifying if you've never done it before. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing good. We're a little... Um, he seems to want me to do something, but I can't figure out what that thing is. So I'm interrogating him. Because he usually will talk back to me and point. But um, it's a crazy. It's just also. It's crazy. It's just an amazing sort of uh, hologram microcosm of the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just. uh, I think that that would be so cool. You know, you have a living laboratory of of the whole thing, right? Right there. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And he's beginning to become interested in, like, talk about this mythical, this kind of thought that's there before we learn how to think. I was stunned the other day because we went to Half Price Books, and I kind of, I show him books, and whichever one he seems to take to are the ones that I buy. And he became fascinated with this book called I'm Just a Little Pig, and there are pigs in it. (laughs) And I was thinking, that's crazy. He has no basis for liking pigs, right? Like there's, he was never told, this is a pig. This is something that you should appreciate and like. He just likes pigs. And it it blew my hippie mind out of my skull. Like this kid likes pigs. He just, he gets a kick out of them. We were uh, watching one of those Miyazaki, uh, animated films. I can't remember if it was like Totoro or whatever, but they have all these little creatures in them. And at one point, a little owl shows up, and he just started laughing. Why is the why is that owl funny? There's there's no reason for it to be funny. Oh, and now he's actually sitting at his little baby Einstein piano. So yeah, very musical. I love that. I hope he's, I love I hope that. He, I think I that's hope he pursues, I, I'm going to encourage this musical angle, and I hope he pursues it, because he's currently right now sitting cross-legged in front of his piano and hitting keys randomly. 
Well, that's how it starts, you know. There's no way, you know, there's no other way for it to start. So that's terrific, you know. I think that's that's absolutely fabulous. And you know, I think when you say, well, there's no reason to like pigs or to find an owl character uh, amusing, you know, that's the inexplicability of of instinct and taste and deep connections that that's where that's where mythology comes from exactly you know? that's it yeah that's the magic place that that the 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 feeling is witness to itself mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it, it it doesn't need an explanation and there isn't one right. you know right. that explanations fall in an entirely different category level or venn diagram category of 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 life and and that is where history is it's fundamentally a a human constructed practice and it's well downstream from the mist of mythology you know that river that comes out of the mist Mm -hmm. and it goes around the bend you know and way way downstream you you get kind of the sawmill of history you know you start getting you know you know, cows coming down to uh, to to look. You know, to maybe drown in the water. I just thought of there was a beautiful, uh, pretty wild river that I would kayak on a lot in uh, in rural Victoria in Australia called the Lawden River, and there was a big flood at one point, and I was going down between the dead trees with the dingo dog, and and uh, there all there were all these. Uh, the cattle that had come down to uh, to get a drink and had gotten trapped in the mud and then had been died in the flood. And it was just so poignant to see these creatures up against, you know, the native birds, you know, living in the dead trees. And it was just like, you know, a whole different thing of, of farming, you know. And we've talked about sort of, and I think it's worth always thinking about the rise of agriculture. Uh, you know, and how that changed the human mind from the hunter-gatherer sort of connection to the world, connection to other creatures, to weather, to stars, you know? Absolutely. Well, I think that that is a good place to put a pin in it for next episode. Uh, This has been extremely illuminating so far. Would you like to hear about my uh, would you like to hear my creative challenge? Yeah, yeah, hit us. Okay, so the first thought that came to mind if I was to make uh, a seminar here about attention, paying attention, and what are you actually paying attention to, and is paying attention actually just another form of distraction, I think that the the payment issue is the problem, that it's coming from a consumer to somebody who has supply right somebody who has the the power of the thing that you want so the name of the seminar would be investing attention right because i think in oh i like that yeah investing is a much better word if we're going to be using the financial uh transactionary type uh type frame here right and what i would like to provide would be a countermeasure to this idea that to pay attention to something means is 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 a duty that has to be enacted to pay some sort of debt, 
right? Which is what most people, like, if you need to pay attention to, say, that lecture, for example, you're waiting for, for me to give you something that can, in some sense, help you along the way. And that's not always bad. Sometimes that's necessary. But I think that if people thought about what they invested their attention in rather than paid attention, it's, it, it creates a framework where you're eventually going to get dividends from whatever you decide to place your attention on. Right? And it's a much, it's a much more, uh, people will have more agency, I think, if they begin to think in terms of investing rather than paying. I mean, we pay bills. Right. This is the right. this is the financial well issue that we get into is that I have to pay AT&T and I have to pay my rent and I have to pay this and I have to pay that on and on and on and on and on. But very few people are money smart enough to realize that you also you want to invest that money in things that can allow you to flourish. So I think that uh, attention is one of those things. I think that you shouldn't be paying attention to a book as though it's something that is owed to an author or something that you have to do. I think you should be investing your attention with an eye towards what you can get out of it. I think that's fantastic and it ties in with uh, our, our tool thinking about geometric and exponential growth uh, in terms of compound interest, you know, and, and the fact that an investment can actually return value in, in, in disproportion to the, the energy expended, mm -hmm. you know, if it's good. I mean, I think when we do invest our attention properly, we, we get rewards far beyond, uh, you know, a linear progression or accumulation. I think that was, that's, that's really cool. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Now, uh, I'm interested okay. in this tool now. What's the... Okay, well, it's a really, really uh, pragmatic, uh, basic one. It ties into the uh, word problems of, of uh, elementary school math. I always loved that title, Word Problems. I wanted to write a book of poems called that. Um, but think of this as a very basic question. Uh, there's, there is a community pool where I live, but one, one neighbor has... Uh, they're actually their own private swimming pool. Nothing, nothing very fancy at all. Very uh, basic. It might be, uh, I don't know, 12 feet long uh, by 8 feet wide. But everyone can imagine this basic math issue. How do you calculate the volume of water in that pool? I mean, one way you can say is, all right, well, you can drain it and measure the amount of water that way. But that means you have to have some place to put that water, which is a little bit awkward. You have to have some means of draining it. It's, it's difficult. So how do you calculate the volume of water in that defined, well-defined concrete pool? Now that is one of the basic human innovations that I think is just pure genius. It's along the lines of trigonometrically calculating the height of a tree by measuring its shadow. I mean, that's heads-up thinking, you know? That is heads-up thinking. And we take all of these innovations for granted. This is another aspect of the history problem, 
that not only are we really out of touch with the physical and sensory experience of people not that far removed from us in time, we completely take for granted the, the river streams of knowledge upon which our lives and safety depend. So I want people to just do a little bit of a review. It's not hard to find out how we would calculate the volume of water in any given size swimming pool. But now, once people do just a little bit of quick review of that, that's a basic elementary school math challenge, a good little science challenge. Think about this. Think about applying that kind of thinking on a broader conceptual level. What if we were challenged with measuring, determining, coming to terms with the volume of intellectual content, energy, in an argument, say, mm. or a work of art? Mm. How do we do that? What, what do we do? Is that process, although it is more qualitative than quantitative, and I encourage people to look very closely at that distinction, because upon that binary hinges an enormous amount of confusion. Qual versus quan, mm -hmm. huge, huge uh, fissure line, fault line within human history, human consciousness, language, uh, the whole shebang, qual versus quan. It is obviously, at first glance, a little bit trickier to determine the volume of intellectual content in an argument or a work of art. But is it impossible? Is the process really that different than measuring the amount of water in a swimming pool? Could we take a very practical example like the swimming pool and maybe blow that up, maybe use some of those skills in, in a broader sense? So that's my tool concept. And I, I, I kind of want to leave that to resonate with people a little bit. But the important point to make is that if we think that qualitative issues are inherently mysterious and overly complex and can't be broken down, then I think we're missing something really fundamental. I think, I think that that's just simply not true. Yeah. Uh, we, can, we can get the hands of our mind on these issues, but we do need to, as David said, invest some attention. Yeah, I, I don't want to uh, detract from any of that. I just want to add to it where maybe a thought to supplement what, what, you're, what you're saying here is the idea of, uh, of exponents of mm -hmm. a work of art or an intellectual argument having this exponential capacity to generate new versions of itself. Um, it reminds me of the phrase that, you know, the Velvet Underground, only 30 people would be at their shows, but all 30 of those people went on to form bands that changed the world, right? So you could nice, argue that the nice. Velvet Underground was a very artistically and perhaps intellectually dense moment in music history. Um, 
So I won't go too far down there, but that's just the, that's no. What that, that that's a that's a really solid uh, analogy. I think that we can work on. It's very very uh, very appropriate. So cool. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I've got I've got a tip. I've got a, just a quiet little tip, and I do have a dream. Uh, my my little tip is this. Uh, David mentioned, you know, because he's moved house at the same time I have, and kind of this thing of creating psychic pathways for yourself in a home, in a new residence. And uh, it makes me think of Gaston Bachelard's One of the Poetics of Space, which is a great book. Uh, if people haven't read it, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful meditation. Every, every page has one of these exponential thought creators. Sorry to interrupt, but I no, exactly. It exactly does. Uh, and it, it, it is interesting how, you know, we think that we are very flexible and adaptive creatures, and we are, but it does take some, uh, some pathway building, some, some psychic settling in to physical space so that we don't feel trapped and that we can inhabit our spaces, not kind of be contained simply in them. And uh, so I've been following this discipline of, and this is so easy now with our, our uh, smartphones, of, of just making sure that every day, just in my peregrinations from the kitchen to the bedroom to the bathroom to outside to my shed studio or wherever, that I take one new photo every day something as simple as the angle of two walls, something as simple as maybe where I didn't do quite the good job painting as I would have liked, some little thing every day. And if you do that, I guarantee you will have some interesting other exponentially unpredictable perceptions about your space, your sense of you, which is really the whole question for, for life, isn't it? And also for the notion of perception. This is one of the beautiful things that, that Robert Irwin uh, really gets to in his art that we discussed in the book and I think really came through in the discussions is that when we look at the nature of perception, you know, what's going on with Gus right now? What's his perception in the moment? When we start asking about those questions, we start to integrate more fully with life, and our perception of ourselves changes, you know? Our boundaries, our Venn diagram, you know? So I think that's important. One new photo every day, just walking around, you know? Don't make a big production out of it. Just something simple. And you may not look at it again for months, you know? But then when you do look at it, I suggest you go, what is that? You know, what was I thinking? Where was I? And this uh, has a lot to do with, with the new book I'm working on called This, this Thought Lives Here. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about that. David's encouraged me to forge ahead with that, which I really appreciate. How could you Never not with a title that like that? That's a great title. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, this is, I think is where, you know, another perspective helps so much because I did love that title. I thought, well, that was really working, but it, it was important to hear that from you. And a, a little bit of encouragement at the right time 
mean so much. Mm -hmm. You know, we're hearing, you know, guests, you know, tinkering with, with a keyboard. Well, a little bit of encouragement is what we all need. What happens to people's dreams and potential aptitudes? So often they're crushed or just not encouraged, you know? Mm -hmm. So we can be encouraging to each other. And let's not just let that word go by. Encourage. You know? Yeah. Courage. Somehow we, we, we manage to kind of uh, bifurcate that and, and it loses its, it loses the courage. You know, encourage means just oh, pat someone on the back, you know. What about injecting them with courage, you know? There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And that's, that's what I like to do. That's what um, I keep uh, some, some friends very close. Um, we're all good at doing that. It's, you know, you're gassing your, your friends up when it's a good idea. You're not a good friend if you gas them up for bad ideas. That's, that's counterproductive. But when you hear that's something, an important yeah, when you hear something that's good, more good things need to exist in this world because so much stuff really sucks right now. So it's I mean, I, I feel like it's your duty to gas up the correct ideas of your friends. I think so too. I think that's kind of uh, you know one of our core practical themes and, and missions with the podcast and it, it is such uh, an invigorating thing to have that sort of connection and it does not need to be a huge tribe I think the Velvet Underground was a good example you know it's not the size it's not the quantity it is the quality absolutely okay are we ready for the dream this is, this is an interesting um, um, I've, I've, this got me thinking about uh, my long-term practice of recording dreams because it's an example of where uh, three th sort of lines of thought from my uh, very recent uh, waking life kind of converged. I was thinking about that strange notion of, of uh, sentience in, in other animals. Uh, non-human animals in, in preparation for uh, what we've been discussing in this episode. I was thinking of the mirror test. I think people would be familiar with that idea. The notion is that uh, somehow sentience is defined is if a creature can uh, recognize itself in a mirror and deal conceptually with the idea that it is looking at uh, itself, which I think is a highly dubious idea. Um, and it's interesting to note, uh, if anyone wants to uh, do a little research, about which animals pass the so-called mirror test. Mm. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about what a deeply uh, human-biased idea that is, and that that is a very strange way to approach our fellow creatures. Um, and then I was thinking about... Uh, my mirror, which is not a huge mirror, it's in my living room, um, but it's big enough that I can't remember how I managed to hang it successfully in my condo that I moved out of. I, I do remember I did that alone. And that got me thinking about how important it is to have some help when you're hanging things on walls. Mm -hmm. That just another set of hands and eyes, you know, really makes the task easier. Uh, and my best friend Phil came out from LA to help me hang uh, 
uh, the masks. And it was just, you know, it, it, it would have been not a nightmare doing that alone, but it wouldn't have been fun and it wouldn't have been done as well. So there is another example of where partnership and collaboration is so important and is an essential, uh, it's essential to our survival on multiple levels. And it's an interesting counterpoint to the notion of, of a mirror. And then I was also thinking about the Robert Irwin notion of symbolism and metaphor. As powerful and magical as those capabilities are, there are also blockades to perception, to immediacy and presence. This is one of the things that the book club group really got onto. And I think it was, it was tremendously inspiring to sort of hear that articulated from different points of view. The contrast being metaphor and symbol as being both wall and window. Mm -hmm. You know, we think of them as windows, but we forget the wall part. You know, we, we lose immediacy of presence. We lose the inexplicable dynamism of the moment. And we start creating constructive theories and explanations. And pretty soon, whatever we're engaged with has slipped away. Some strange membranes of, of construct have crept in. and. We may not even be aware of them until something, you know, wakes us and sharpens our, our attention again. Mm -hmm. So I was just dropping off to sleep and reading a bit about the problems of symbolism in dreams and some hysterical stuff from Freud, which just... It, uh, I think I went to sleep sort of with a kind of giggling. But in the dream... I woke up in my new house and there was this profound sense of not being familiar with the sounds of, of nighttime here, which are not many, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very, very quiet. And I, I heard kind of a slight adjustment in the house itself, which is an interesting sort of kind of animate idea, you know, metal move, things move, you know, things are alive. Uh, but I went into my living room area and there was enough light coming through the blinds. I hadn't closed them. And I've, I've got these garden lights around the front that I'm kind of, I kind of like. Uh, so there was some light coming through. And the wall where the mirror hangs was empty. And I had this very peculiar sense of loss and panic. And I thought, where is the mirror? And I woke up on that note and I thought, you know, this is an example where a, an obviously deeply symbolic dream almost has a kind of ludicrous overstatement to it, mm -hmm. doesn't it? I mean, it... it it, it, it seems like, okay, we get it, symbolism, yeah, hit us over. I mean, if you read that in a story, you'd go, oh, okay, yeah, right. He's just moved house. He's at a different stage of his life, different, and he's lost his sense of, of mirror and reflection. And I just thought, you know, this is the problem with, with the magic of symbolism. And... I immediately felt the need, like a deep instinctive need, to, to go out for a walk and clear my head. 
and only a short distance from my house, I found these two sticks that were anchored into the earth with uh, these big, big uh, rusted bolts. So two parallel lines of grooved wood and two big rusted bolts. And I thought, that is beautiful. That meets every uh, possible criterion I have for something worth my attention. I have no idea what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. I suspect it's the ruins or, or some sort of uh, broken off bit of something else, but I have no idea. But it has complete visual and structural integrity in itself, and yet it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't stand for, it doesn't represent something else. It simply is. Mm. And I went back and looked at a line from uh, Emerson, which I will end on here, but I really encourage people to think deeply about this. Uh, Emerson had some really good insights. Uh, I don't think he was a very good poet, but I think he was a tremendous essayist, and I think he had some some aphoristic bits of wisdom for us. He says, the world is not symbolic. It is emblematic. And I think that might be an interesting way to leave off this episode of contemplating what is the difference between a symbol or sign and an emblem. What does emblematic mean that is different that is engaging, that is welcoming, perhaps inexplicable, in a way that symbolism veers towards the heavy-handed, the cliché, the, the assumption that, that doesn't get interrogated. It begins to close off rather than open up the world, and it I think explicitly starts to close off the human Venn diagram from the larger non-human animal, plant, mineral, you know, and that's what we, we got to get back to, what we, we got to get back to.